So now we have an economy that's completely manipulated and has money, you know, shoved into it, pooling with the top, right? It's going to the corporations who are buying back their stocks. The assets are going up. The S&P price to earnings is abysmal. The median home price has gone up 24% in the last year. I also bring up something called the SAR, S-A-A-R. It's the percentage of personal income that is derived from government subsidies or government handouts. That amount has gone from 5% in the 1960s to 31% as a result of the pandemic. So nearly one third wow. of personal income is now reliant and dependent on the government. You are becoming handicapped by the government and then they're handing you a crutch. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. What is up, fellow or prospective Bitcoiners? Hope you're each having a great week. A warm and heartfelt welcome into another installment of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today, Josh and myself, Dan, are thrilled to be joined by the extremely articulate Natalie Brunel. Natalie is a Polish-American television news personality, investigative journalist, podcast host, and educator. She is a senior correspondent and investigative reporter for Spectrum News 1 in LA, and she's an adjunct instructor at USC School of Communication and Journalism. Most recently, she's the host of the Coin Stories podcast, where she speaks with some of the most renowned Bitcoiners in the world. Josh and I had an absolute blast over this hour talking with Natalie, and we covered a number of topics. They include Bitcoin and immigration, the perils and miseries of socialism and communism, why American ideals may be eroding, Bitcoin is digital property, why the Fed's between a rock and a hard place, Ron Burgundy and Veronica Corningstone, and how to flush your Halloween candy down trapdoors. You can follow Natalie on Twitter at Nat Brunel. That's at N-A-T-B-R-U-N-E-L-L. And all her fantastic content, including the Coin Stories podcast, will be linked down in the show notes. If you are enjoying the BCB podcast, you're catching what we're throwing, you're smelling what we're stepping in, then you can support the show in a few different ways. You could subscribe on YouTube or whatever podcast app you're using. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And if you want to get really frisky, you can start using the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Check out our instructions in the show notes for how to stream sats while listening to podcasts. Some pretty cool stuff. All right, I will shut up and let Natalie do the heavy lifting from here. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy this discussion. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Natalie Brunel, thank you for gracing us with your presence here on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I am doing great on this very gloomy Los Angeles morning. Oh, it's beautiful here. It's a good balmy 32 degrees. I went on a bike ride and froze. I didn't have, I didn't have any gloves. It was a miserable, miserable ride this morning. I'm going to tell you, I do not miss living near Chicago or in the Midwest for that very reason. I hate the cold. I am, I am totally a beach bug, so I like it out here. We aren't going to dox all the specifics, but we did discover pre-hitting uh, the record button that you grew up in an area very close to where we are employed. So yeah, you know the drill up here in the uh, Chicago area. We're, we're moving into hell season up here in terms of weather. But Oh yeah. I remember um, getting up in the morning and it being so cold, I didn't even want to get out of my bed to take a shower. And then once I was in the shower, didn't want to get out because <laughs> you would feel the freeze. Um, and my parents would like have to, my dad would have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to scrape the car um, and turn it on and, and wait for it to like defrost. I was like, I don't know why anyone would choose to live here. <laughs> brutal. Absolutely brutal. Um, so we're huge fans of your show. And one of the things we appreciate the most about the Coin Stories podcast is it's kind of funny, like we've listened to people for hundreds of hours that are contributing in the space, but then you ask some questions in the beginning of the episode and I'm like, 
holy shit, I didn't know anything about this person other than their ideas about Bitcoin. So your ability to unpack kind of some of these, these personal backstories, I find super fascinating. So we're going to do the same with you. We're going to put the shoe on the other foot here. And why don't you give us sort of your life trajectory, what got you into Bitcoin, some of your upbringing, what got you to the place you're at in life currently? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, because I was sort of in the same place when I was going down the rabbit hole. I would watch all these amazing people and they were always talking about Bitcoin and the economy and everything that's wrong in our current system. And I would be left with, who is this guy and where did he come from? <laughs> you know, why did he get into this? So I love biographies and autobiographies and I just find it fascinating to hear people's um, life stories, especially like rags to riches stories and people who overcome obstacles. So um, yeah, but basically I am, my whole family's from Poland. Uh, I was born there and we immigrated to the Chicago area when I was five years old. So I was very lucky in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't really have that much of a language barrier. I kind of picked, picked up English very quickly and, and tried to assim assimilate as best I could. Um, my parents had it much harder because they basically had to start over. Um, they left a, what was, you know, a, a su successful for, you know, Poland business back then, but they had grown up in communism. So they were emerging from the Iron Curtain and things were really, really tough. And my dad didn't really want us to come because he's like, you know, we don't know the language. He was already in his 40s. My mom was late 30s. And, um, and so they were, you know, trying to figure out whether they could even start their lives over. And my mom really pushed us to come. And so I saw my parents just work so, so, so hard, um, you know, try to pick up the language and work from morning until night. And um, I really admired their work ethic because everything was basically like this sacrifice so that their family could have a better life. And so that really stuck with me. Um, I was really pushed to be a very, very good student. Um, and so I, I studied really hard. I got really good grades. I, I went to a high school that you probably are familiar with out there. And, uh, and I set my sights on the media industry. I really wanted to work as a newscaster and a storyteller because I grew up watching a lot of news. Uh, my parents would always have the, the news, the TV news on because it helped them augment and learn English. And so I grew up, you know, watching Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and, and thinking like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful profession to be able to interview thought leaders and politicians and celebrities and, you know, travel the world and learn something new every day. So uh, yeah, I went to, I actually came to the Los Angeles area for undergrad, uh, went back to Chicago for grad school at Northwestern, and then set off on a on a TV career that I did for more than 10 years. It's kind of hard to believe that I just recently left a job that I've done pretty much since college. Not a lot of people, I think, today do the exact same job that they studied in school. I literally, for my whole career until now, was doing the exact thing that I learned how to do in college, like making packages, doing reports, anchoring. Um, and it was a really rewarding experience, but it was also time for a change. So, Well, what an awesome bridge Bitcoin provides for you. Because, I mean, we've seen you on these major news outlets and there is a huge need for investigative journalism and just good reporting that sort of starts from ground zero because obviously we're incredibly early on this adoption curve. And Anytime I hear you on one of these news outlets, I'm like, man, we need more people doing that. Um, wh when did Bitcoin come into play for you? Yeah, so it was 2017, I think the same year you guys got into it. And I was working for NBC up in uh, the California State Capitol, Sacramento. And I had a lot of friends who were in Silicon Valley. I was actually dating someone at the time who, whose really close friend worked for Coinbase. And so I would go to San Francisco a lot and hang out with their friend group, and they would talk about crypto and Bitcoin. And, you know, one guy had lost a ton of Bitcoins in the Mt. Gox situation, which I don't yep. know if you guys are familiar with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so I just, you know, I started to hear about it and I became very curious and I opened up my first account and bought um, some Bitcoin. And I just, I, you know, I regret at the time not looking into it more because at the time I just, I thought it was just like a trade or like a stock. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I thought that there was a lot of risk to it and I was worried about it because newscasters don't make as much money as, as people think. It seems like a very glamorous job and, you know, the 
tippy top people make a ton of money. But when you're just, you know, an anchor reporter in a smaller town, you're not like killing it, you know, where yeah, you could buy yeah. a hundred one. <laughs> right. So I'm actually, I'm actually proud of myself for how much money I put in because, you know, it, to me, I saw it actually as a really big risk. And then, um, and then I actually did a story about Bitcoin when I was there. There was like a Bitcoin ATM locally, and I was just trying to learn more about it. So I pitched it as a story. And I think my newsroom thought I was crazy. They're like, you're, you know, you're going to cause people to put money into something and then lose it. Uh, but yeah, so 2017, the, the seeds were planted. And then it was... I had a mentor uh, who I met through the industry who kept telling me to read the Bitcoin standard. And I just was always busy. I didn't find time. And then I finally read the Bitcoin standard and it changed my entire life. I mean, I literally, I felt like the veil was lifted from my eyes and I had, um, I had known that there was a problem in the system for a long time because as a reporter, you know, every single day, you're reporting on the very crises that are facing this country on a micro level, like each individual experience in these small towns. And it was it was sad to see, you know, over the last five years, the country becoming more and more divided and people's issues within communities just ballooning, even though politicians each promised to make it better, or they would pour money onto something. And it was just like festering. And I didn't understand that at the root of that problem was money and money printing and what the Fed was doing. I didn't get it. Like I didn't, there was no point in my life and career where someone sat me down and explained how money printing works, how the Fed works, everything that's happened for the last, you know, several decades since we went off the gold standard. Yeah. And it wasn't until the Bitcoin standard that I was like, oh my gosh, not only is this the problem, and this is connected to all the things I see on a daily basis with people, but there's also a solution, which like gives me a lot of hope because I, I will say I was getting pretty jaded the last couple of years. I'm like, every, everything sucks. Like yeah. every problem's just getting worse. Every politician's just corrupt and there's nothing that'll fix it. You just have to watch your own back and take care of yourself. And like, we're, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And then I looked about Bitcoin and I was like, oh, we're, we're going to be saved. It's crazy to think. And I've, I think I've read this idea from multiple people that the money is the bedrock, the cornerstone of kind of social stability. And when you have that weak or crumbling infrastructure under the bottom, everything is just turns to degeneracy almost, you know, it's, it's really, it's sad to watch, but that idea is really powerful when you understand it. Yeah. Like a ba a form of base layer human language is what we're dealing yeah. with, but it takes so long to get there, which is the challenging thing. Before I hand it to you, Josh, one thing I wanted to say about the Bitcoin standard, because that I mean, I think that's pretty typical for a lot of Bitcoiners that it, it had a big impact. Certainly did for me. That book is incredible. And it's almost like you need to tell people if they're not history nuts, like get through the first three quarters because it's all there for a reason. There's kind of all these pieces in the air. And then the last third or quarter of that book is just wham and Safedine brings it back together. And that that finale and conclusion of that book, I think it's probably orange pilled more people on this planet than probably any other resource I can think of. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I think the history is actually the selling point of the book for me. So because when I pitch it, I'm like, by the way, this book is really not about Bitcoin. It's not like you're learning about this technology and the mind. It's literally about the history of money, which right. again, I never learned and I found fascinating. I found it fascinating. Well said. Likewise, for me, it's just people's expectations aren't met. They're expecting to turn to, on page one and start learning about Bitcoin. And it's what, 180 pages later that they start learning about Bitcoin. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are probably reading that book going, I thought this was about Bitcoin, but I'm just reading about Austrian econ and yeah. uh, how degenerate modern art is. <laughs> I love taping so much. Such, like, oh my god! Wait, this guy's taping a banana to a wall. Oh my god! I know. I need to, his talk. His discussions about how music has changed and architecture and all yeah. of it. All of it's connected to money. I'm like, you're brilliant. I love it, you. I love that. I love that. It's savage. Wait, did you just interview him, or are you interviewing him shortly? I saw something on Twitter. 
So I interviewed him for the Coin Stories podcast. Okay. So I got his whole backstory and like his whole journey to becoming the author of the Bitcoin Standard. But I interviewed him again because I read his second book, The Fiat Standard, which I recommend to everyone. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. He digs into how fiat affects the food industry, the health industry. Um, like, I mean, he just breaks down the problems in our current system. And it's amazing. amazing. That's on my list for sure. Well, uh, we're going to link all your stuff. We'll link both those books and both those episodes in the show notes. Thanks. Natalie, I just, I was actually listening to your Tone Vase episode this morning when I was out on, a, on the bike and everything. And one of the things that struck home for me during that interview was he was from the Soviet Union. His story um, about coming from the Iron Curtain, you know, being able to only leave with $100, his, his family having to start completely over. When you guys came from Poland, as far as you under, I know you were five, so you probably don't remember it well, but is what your parents recollect similar to his story about how, I mean, are their ideas and intuitions about the world very intoned from all of that uh, experience in Poland? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, communism is something that they never want to experience again. And so when I see people that have this sort of like friendly vibe toward authoritarian government or socialism, I get really worried and I get nervous and I, I tell them to do their homework because if you have experienced that kind of life, um, it, it brings about a lot of misery for most people. And so, um, you know, it's amazing to see how much people are willing to risk and in order to just start over and flee that type of government. And yeah. yeah, my parents would tell me stories about their lives. And it was just, it was a very hard decision for them to come. And it actually took, I mean, my, my mom, I'm, at, I'm writing kind of a personal essay about this that I hope to share soon. My mom's dream was to come to America. Her, it was like the American dream ever since she was young, because, you know, communism just left people so um, impoverished in Poland for so long. And the country was, was invaded by, you know, everyone around it. And, uh, and so her dad would show her American movies and she fell in love with the idea of what America represented and the kind of life that she could have here with her family. So she tried and tried and tried to come, but most people don't realize it's not easy. Like you, you have to win like a visa lottery or you have to have family that, you know, go through the process of inviting you. And it took 20 years for my family to have the chance to come here. And wow. so it came to that point where, you know, my mom had been trying for decades and then finally she was able to, to move. And that decision was not an easy one, but they left behind an apartment. Um, like, I mean, you, you basically just, you could only go with what you could carry and that was it. And so they started from scratch. Um, you know, it's funny because when I look back at that time, I didn't know it at the time. I just knew I didn't, I didn't have as much as the people around me because my, my mom was like, oh, we're going to move to a nice suburb so she could go to a good school and my brother could go to a good school. Um, well, that meant that we were, you know, in the smallest house or smallest apartment and everyone else around us had nice houses. So I knew like I was different in the sense that we came from somewhere else. We're not as you know, we don't have the money that the people around us do. And it made me very, very determined to like change my status in, in life and to, to kind of, to justify the sacrifice that my parents made because my parents wanted to come when they were, you know, in their teens and twenties and they didn't have that chance. So like, I'm kind of living out their dream, which has been really rewarding and beautiful. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how much the American dream has changed. And I feel like before there was a sense that you could really change your life. If you work hard and you're a good person, you could be a part of the middle class and not have to worry about your kids. Today, it's becoming harder and harder. And I think Bitcoin actually changes that and gives us sort of a renaissance of the American dream. The idea, it seems like it's a first world country um, situation where people are so well off that yeah. they, they kind of don't understand the kind of steep cliff that they're kind of staring down when they're thinking about socialism. They think it's this equitable, everyone gets, everyone's treated fairly. Mm -hmm. But the, the fundamental ideas behind it that someone else is going to manipulate prices and those prices are what give the rest of the economy the signal in order to know how to produce what and to not have shortages or prices explode, that someone else can pull those strings from the background and, and make it all work perfectly is so naive as to be absurd. And 
only people that I think only people that truly live through those circumstances can really get it or people that have really been um, educated enough to or, or want to read and understand what go, has gone on historically in those situations can really appreciate the kind of terror that that creates inevitably. And yeah, I, I agree. To piggyback, like at the end of the day, the American dream is freedom and individual sovereignty. Like that is the whole point. That's the whole idea of the American dream. People are coming here because of that freedom magnet, which I feel like is losing a lot of its power. Thank goodness we have Bitcoin because Bitcoin is an even larger freedom magnet and hopefully it's going to imbue those same uh, principles. That's my first thought. The second one, to go back to just your parents' situation and then Josh, you referenced the Tone Vase episode. Tone was saying when he was talking to you that they literally limited the maximum amount of value you could extract from the Soviet Union was $100 per person. Mm -hmm. It is mind-blowing how much Bitcoin decimates this jurisdictional limitation. I mean, it is just a giant fuck you to nation states or borders that limit the amount that people can extract from their countries. And I, I just don't think, obviously, nation states haven't digested this, but what an incredible privilege for people in second, third world countries or just places they prefer not to be. We just talked to Alex Gladstein a couple weeks ago and covered yeah. this with him, just how much this empowers people under you know, autocratic and despotic regimes. It's, it's amazing. But even just for your parents, I mean, think about how much different it would look like in the year 2021 for them moving their value, extracting their value from Poland. It, it is truly a theme that most Bitcoiners have thought through, but I think is worth digesting over and over again, because this is one of the biggest implications of this protocol for humanity. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I really think that what worries me about where we're at in our country is because we've been the global reserve currency for so long, we've gotten away with a lot of this, the money printing, the inflation, and the problems are creeping up so slowly that most people are sort of blind to them, right? And I think, I think Ross Stevens in one of his um, in one of his writings referred to this story of like the fish that's swimming through water. I don't know if you guys read this, where he says that these two fish come up come upon another like an older fish swimming the other way. And he says to the young fish, like, hey, how's the water? And then they swim past him and he, they're like, what's water? Because like, you're just, you don't think about it. You're just yeah. always around it, right? And we're kind of entitled here, especially certain communities. And I think that there's just such like a, a lack of understanding about um, certain government systems and the history of things like money. And this is, you know, I think education is key to everything. And yes. What worries me, and I'm an educator now at USC, I've been teaching for a couple of years now, it worries me that we're sort of moving in the direction of like, if you're a hard teacher, or if you, you know, if you want to give someone the grade that they actually reserve, you're, you're deserve, you're mean, like you're not a nice person. This, you know, you have to take into account this person's, you know, feelings. this person's feeling anxious or stressed, their feelings. Well, that I, I just, that's not what's going to have our country excel. I mean, we need rigorous education. We need hot. I, you need professors sometimes that are going to be like, you know yeah. what, do this over you didn't do a good job. Like, let me help you if you want help, but like, this is an F or this is a D or whatever. And if you want to cry about that, go cry about it. But like, you didn't learn the material, so I can't pass you. Right. And I think today it's like all about feelings and being nice and making accommodations. And it's like, we're becoming weak sauce. Like yes, weak, we weak. and I love that statement of like you know socialists create you know hard or uh, what is it capitalism creates easy times easy times create socialists or <laughs> yeah yeah I know exactly the saying yeah. you're talking about yeah it's a crazy yeah. cycle yeah because capitalism is what brings about the ability for people to thrive, the ability for a middle class to, to surge and for people to accumulate wealth because it encourages saving, not borrowing and going into debt. It yeah. encourages capital accumulation and investing in production. And it's like people have somehow made capitalism into mean things. And, and they think that a ballooning government with these fat politicians taking home huge salaries and book deals and speaking fees, that's cap like that's capitalism. That's fair. Or I that mean, it's, Printing money can create value. Like value is created by people doing something valuable for other people, like creating, uh, creating a service or a commodity or creating something useful. Printing totally. money doesn't create anything useful. It just, it literally squanders resources by misallocating everything from the yep. top down. And exactly. it, yeah, it's insane. 
Exactly. Natalie, when you are going on these appearances on networks to talk about Bitcoin, first of all, those are challenging environments. Like anytime I look at one of your videos, I'm like, man, this is like, you're kind of going into the lion's den. Like, because I think a lot of today's media, if I'm, if I'm nice to them, they just don't understand this ad, uh, asset class. If I'm being more critical, it's that they're, you know, outright malicious towards it. But you're always very gifted and articulate at kind of starting from ground zero with people. So for our audience, if there's somebody listening that's newer or just, you know, an OG that, that wants a refresher, where do you usually start with orange pill delivery? Where's your go-to kind of intro? Give us sort of the, the, maybe the first few minutes of your cell on why this network is so important. Oh, gosh, you know, it really kind of depends on the audience, I guess, because some people just flat out want to know what Bitcoin is and they don't understand. And there's so many great ways to describe Bitcoin, right? So I don't even say it's like a, I don't say digital decentralized currency. I'm like, it is digital property. It is 21 million plots of land in cyberspace that you could own. And each of those plots of land can actually, it's actually divided into a hundred million little plots of land. So you don't have to own a whole one, you know? Um, it's it's digital savings technology. But I think where I really start is just in the at the at the problem that exists today and like shining a spotlight on it. Because again, I think that everyone understands that something's fundamentally wrong in our country. I think it's the reason why we've had such division and we've now polarized ourselves to left and right. So I tend to start talking about the problem with the US dollar. And I start to explain like what money printing is, because again, people don't understand how much money has been printed and what it's causing to society. So, um, you know, I actually, I went to a dinner a couple, like a week ago, and it was an investors group and um, no one really understood or knew about Bitcoin. And so where I started is really talking about um, our balance sheet right now, how much debt we have to, to GDP and how leveraged the whole system is. And the fact that 40% of the dollars that are in circulation right now were printed in the last year. Mind blowing. Yeah. And then I start talking about how we've artificially lowered interest rates. So now we have an economy that's completely manipulated and has money you know, shoved into it, the the liquidity being placed in and it's pooling with the top, right? It's going to the corporations who are buying back their stocks. The assets are going up. The S&P price to earnings is abysmal. It's like the, literally these companies are not worth the stock value of it. And the real estate has gone up 24, median home price has gone up 24% in the last year. Um, I also bring up something called the SAR, S-A-A-R. It's the percentage of personal income that is derived from government subsidies or government handouts for an average family in the U.S. That amount has gone from 5% in the 1960s to 31% as a result of the pandemic. So nearly one third wow. of personal income is now reliant and dependent on the government. You are becoming handicapped by the government and then they're handing you a crutch, right? So I start to like expose these things and talk about, oh, the dollar's lost 95% of its value. I like to just kick out a bunch of stats at them. And then they're like, whoa, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And um, and then by then I start to say like, you know, that there's a solution and Bitcoin's the solution because it's it's absolutely scarce and the government has no say, no control in it. And, uh, and, it's, and it brings about financial freedom. I love what you said about handicapping people and handing them a crutch. Because I mean, if you wanted to essentially turn people into indentured servants yeah. and, you know, perpetuate that and, and increase that, what better way to do it than to, I mean, whether or not you want to think that this is purposely done or a bunch of fools or some combination thereof, it's happening either way. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's just nuts to think that you're literally just kicking that crutch out from under them, catching them behind and, and, you know, hopefully you'll do better next time, buddy. And you don't have to perform at all. You can go to university, get your C's, get your degree, and your feelings are going to be well kept. I think what's challenging for a lot of folks too, Natalie, is that, so I'm guessing you get this response sometimes when you go down that train of thought of like, well, I'm good. Like my, my uh, 401k and Roth IRAs are doing just fine. And I don't feel like my buying power has plummeted over the last two years from COVID. What I think a lot of folks don't understand is how abrupt these changes always do happen and can happen in the future. I think the best example is like, things were hunky-dory in 2006. You know what I mean? And then bam, 
I mean, look at how quickly valuations can change. You mentioned the S&P. I mean, when you're dealing with companies that, ha- that are, have valuations of 30 times earnings, I love it when Preston Pish gets into this stuff. It's like, yeah. when the credit markets aren't suppressed, these valuations are going to change. Translation, when the market becomes free again, mm-hmm. your stock portfolio is going to adjust significantly. But yeah. I think it's just this theme of like, people don't understand how fragile it is, but then how quickly that whole thing can crumble or, or, or adjust. Um, and yeah. I guess that's just sort of a, an IQ test, I guess. If you can kind of put the first principles and the pieces together and understand where the dominoes are going to end up, you're going to be one step ahead of the game. And the answer to that starts with a B and ends with the word coin. <laughs> All of these investors, though, have been in this space. I mean, everyone that's alive right now, generally, besides people in their 70s or 80s, don't know any other kind of market. I mean, since the 70s, this thing has been every time there's a hiccup, we're going to pump some money into it and we're going to lower interest rates again. So people have been institutionalized in a way to understand this is the way it's going to go. And I expect there will be a correction, but I'm going to buy the living hell out of it because when it happens, they're just going to show up and they're going to save the day. And I think a lot of people in our camp expect that there's going to be a time when saving the day literally is what blows everything up. Yeah. But when is that going to happen? That's a very, that's a very dangerous thing to try to, to try to guess. No, I completely agree with you. And that was one of the things I talked about um, last week. And this is what I mentioned to people who are asking me questions about Bitcoin is the fact that um, that the money printing and the injection of liquidity in our into our economy, it was like ramped up exponentially because of the pandemic, right? And it I think it kind of exposed how how sick our money system is, especially yes. to people who are in the Bitcoin world. And I think we're we're between a rock and a hard place. And and until you start to learn about our monetary system and our economy, you don't really understand this. But basically it's like the government, the Fed has shown that if the if the market tries to correct itself, it's gonna it's gonna pump in as much money as possible to artificially regulate things, right? And the interest rates will will go back down, and they're gonna place more money into the into the system. Well, that leads to hyperinflation ultimately, and you can say that that's like on the you know extreme, but that's exactly where you're headed with that. The more that you pump, essentially printed dollars yeah. into the into our system. On the flip side, if we were to have someone like a Paul Volcker from the 80s who's going to hike interest rates and hike them the amount that would actually be needed, well, first of all, you're going to crush so many people, right? Especially ones with the adjustable adjustable rates who are going to crush real estate. Yep, and everything. you're going to cause everything to plummet. And, and that's probably the best thing we need, right? Someone needs to take us off the drugs and allow us to go through re- withdrawal. But no politician will admit to that opportunity cost, even though, yes, you're right. When you crash, people can make a lot of money, actually, on, on the when it, when it hits bottom and starts to climb back up. But I think we are so leveraged and we've created such a big bubble that's 10 times bigger than the one in 08, 09, that it would take us, first of all, a really long time to recover from that type of crash. And I just don't see any politician or federal bureaucrat allowing that to happen. So I think we're taking the road of hyperinflation. So you need to hedge your bets. You need to hedge your money. And I think instead of playing with these meme stocks, you know, and people trying to day trade, it's like, I'm a plumber, but I'm also now a day trader because I have to beat inflation. That's insanity. It's insanity. And that's like not representative of this country. This morning, I read a quote from the the book, When Money Dies, from the Weimar hyperinflation in Germany in the 20s. And there was a direct quote. I actually tweeted it out this morning, but it goes something to the effect of everybody in that economy was betting on meme stocks. Like they were buying, it was a meme stock economy, just like we're seeing now. The, The gold chart looked exactly like Bitcoin does in today's situation. The echoes and just insane parallels that are going on between Weimar in the 20s and what we're seeing now are, are eerie. Like I get goosebumps reading this stuff. Here's the exact quote from When Money Dies. Speculation on the stock exchange has spread to all ranks of the population and shares rise like balloons to limitless heights. The way that history repeats with this stuff is crazy. Yeah. And here's the scary thing to tie this back together to, I, I referenced a couple minutes ago, just how quickly these valuations can change. This is this is one thing we're really passionate about at the firehouse is Bitcoin. I mean, we're, we're maxis if you've listened to us for six seconds, but for us, it's more than just fun and games. It's like, we're trying to 
set our friends and their families up for future success and to be able to batten down the hatches and weather the storm. And Dogecoin encumbers that goal. It's a very real issue for us, all right? And now SHIB is encumbering Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I what I think what I think a lot of newbies don't understand is they don't get how liquidity works in these markets. So I was explaining this to somebody at work the other day. I was like, "You might buy a coin at sixty two cents, and an event's going to happen because these things are ultimately worthless. There's going to be no buyer on the other side, and you're not going to be able to exit until eleven cents. Yeah, and you, like that. If you've never traded, you don't understand how markets work." There's not an infinite magical buyer on the other end. So even when we move into the crypto space, if there's no underlying valuation and use case and purpose behind a protocol, and obviously that's for each person to decide, but like you, you, you can get left holding bags even if you have your orders in perfectly, you know? For sure. Well, it requires you to time the market and it requires you to, you know, sit there and try to figure out when to exit. It's, I mean, it, this is ridiculous. This is not how the average person should have to make money. And I think, I think it's, you know, we don't even understand what it's like to be able to put our money away in the bank and not see it completely erode in value until Bitcoin. And, and that's what I think is amazing about Bitcoin. And going back to what I said about education, I truly think that this is like the one thing in addition to Bitcoin that will fix the problems in society, because I guarantee you that I can take a walk here. I could go on the, you know, Santa Monica pier. And if I ask the average person how did Hitler come to power? Why did what like what happened in Weimar Republic? I guarantee 99% of people have no idea. Yep. Would not be able to talk about hyperinflation, would not be able to talk about money. And like I mean, I think there's something wrong when none of us understand that money's at the root of half of these problems, and yeah. yet we keep voting in people that are doing the same thing that, that's been done for the last, you know, 100 years now. Let's pull on that thread briefly. Enumerate for us Adolf's rise to power and how that applies to money, if you will, for somebody that's not aware. Yeah, well, so... I mean, I think that it takes a little bit of, of history with regards to what happened with um, World War One and after World War One, how the countries devalued essentially, like they, they wouldn't admit that their currencies devalued. So they just printed a bunch of money and the currency was collapsing and gold, uh, gold was, you know, um, moving offshore and moving to different places where it was valued appropriately. And so I think in order to pay back the reparations, because Germany had to pay back um, with the treaty, I think it was the Treaty of Versailles, yeah. they had to pay back what, uh, I don't know, they devalue their currency by, I think, 70% or something just to repay. They repaid it with inflation and money printing. Hmm. So what did that do? That led rise to people who were going to promise to make life better. That led rise to, to Hitler, who basically said, I'm going to come in and champion for the average person. And it was kind of disguised as a populist movement, right? Yeah. That this is the people that he represented and he's going to protect like the German nationality. And in reality, it was like you were basically putting into power a dictator who was violent and horrible. And I mean, it was a disgrace to humanity, the crimes that he committed. And obviously like being in Poland, Auschwitz is a place that I've visited with my family. I, can you believe that like people agreed to those That's kinds insane. of atrocities? Those, I mean, it's just scary. And I, and I don't want to compare the pandemic to things like that because it's, it's, it's not the same, but when you see people allow freedoms to be taken away little by little, it's a slippery slope. It's always under an emergency action. Once you start dividing society into, you know, this person's okay to function and go to a restaurant and this person's not, and now we're really different, that's very, very, very scary. And I don't think that anything is as deadly and horrible as, you know, um, the Holocaust could happen again. But at the same time, who knows? I mean, it's just, it's just really sad and scary. Yeah. You know, this is not to make this any darker after talking about <laughs> concentration camps and Hitler. But one is interesting. There's a 10-step kind of movement towards genocide. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at this. I just had to look it up quick because it's so scary to think about what happened in Germany if it could ever happen again. But step one, classification. Two, symbolization. Three, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution. And all of those, I mean, some of those beginning parts of those steps, you could probably fairly easy, easily identify after this whole COVID polarization situation you see with like vaccinated, unvaccinated. Yeah. And it's really scary stuff to even see incremental steps towards something that crazy. 
I heard John Vallis talking with Breedlove. I was listening to actually this episode last night while drinking an English IPA. It was a wonderful evening. But um, they got into how cancel culture, and this is going to sound crazy, but I think there's a lot of truth there. Like the seeds of genocide are rooted in cancel culture. Like if you're just outright saying, and obviously there, there, you know, there's some perspectives that we can't tolerate, but, but if you're someone that's just saying, if you hold this opinion, you're gone. Like we're wiping you off the face of a network or whatever. Vallis and Breedlove were basically exploring that theme that that's the, that's the roots of getting rid of inquiry and openness and honest discussion and valuing yeah. other perspectives and just outright erasing someone from, from a space, which I thought was profound. Polarization itself is just the ability to dehumanize another population of someone who disagrees, you know? That's why the First yeah. Amendment is what it is, so that we can all have an opinion. I mean, you don't have to agree, but we're all entitled to an opinion whether or not it's popular. Yeah. And I really do believe, like you kind of mentioned the word incremental, the, the, the things that happen, they start with baby steps and little changes and little things. And all of a sudden, you know, you look back 10 years and you've basically given up half of your freedom. And I, I always make this comparison. I know it's silly, but it's kind of like, you know, you start, you start changing your diet a little bit. You put on like, you know, a little bit of weight here. You put on like 0.5 pounds, but you're, you're seeing each other every day. You don't notice. Well, then you don't see the person for, I don't know, five months and you notice yeah. the difference. Like it's when you, you know, kind of zoom out and you go 30,000 feet above the air and look back down, you kind of start to see the problems that we've allowed to happen through just little votes here and there. I mean, the Federal Reserve, when it was created in 1913, never was intended to have the kind of power that it has. It was not supposed to have this balancing act of interest rates. It wasn't even allowed to like buy government bonds. I mean, and, and the... In, the income tax came out in 1913 too. It was supposed to be for a tiny percentage of people for like, you know, a tiny amount, 7%. And it was because they were going to do away with tariffs, which tariffs affected the middle class. So this was going to be a tax on people who were kind of at the top of society. Well, now guess what the income tax primarily affects? Yep. It's the middle class and it's like 40%. Sometimes, you know, if you add everything up, you're basically giving away more than half of what your, whatever your business or whatever your right. worth is to the government. I mean, so how did that happen? Well, from 1913, it was one vote here, one vote there, one politician there, one little tax increment there. It's like we need to figure out a system that is more fair and based on value and based on supply and demand. And right now, unfortunately, most people don't even understand how economics works. And we have a bunch of, you know, academic Keynesian economists around us who basically say spending is good, consumerism's good, borrow. We're, in the end, we're all dead, right? That's what it, that's what Keynes is known for. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's all propaganda at this point from those people. The idea that they're going to wealth, you know, unrealized capital gains is such a ridiculous thing to say. But they're literally going to they're going to destroy your currency. So you, they're going to force you into some assets classes potentially that are very risky. And then if you got lucky enough to make it through there unscathed, we're going to take your head off on the other side by taxing the unrealized capital gains. I yeah. mean, this is coming yeah. and going. It's like mafioso style taxation. Well, yeah, it's like we're headed toward communism for sure. I mean, the $600 requirement is ridiculous too. the IRS. I mean, that's only going to affect people who are not billionaires. Um, I saw this really funny tweet. I don't know if you guys follow Doug Bonaparte. He's really, really funny on Twitter. And he tweeted on Halloween saying that he's going to eat 30% of his kids. Oh, I did Halloween. see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, call it unrealized capital gains yeah. to teach them about the system. I love it. <laughs> the future they're going to inherit. Yeah. Or and, and then he should provide some like trap door that they can just shove candy down and put a thing that says Bitcoin on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. As we round towards the end here, I could picture somebody listening to this episode that's like, okay, I agree with all of the problems that the three of you just identified. And I recognize that you three think Bitcoin's the solution. In your mind, Natalie, like what about this specific protocol and network is going to solve this just unbelievably ubiquitous, widespread global economic problem? Like why, why is this going to work in your view? Um, I think it just will save us from, from the debt spiral that we've created for ourselves. I think that, um, you know, Bitcoin is the opposite of debt. Bitcoin is a fixed supply and Bitcoin is completely open and free so you can opt out whenever you absolutely want. And I think what's amazing about it is if countries started to adopt it the way El Salvador did and put it on its balance sheet, 
then it could start to create, they can start to create wealth again. And people's value could actually appreciate into the future instead of the opposite. And we can start to regulate our economy based on actual interest rates and based on supply and demand. And it would also be amazing to have like a global neutral currency where you didn't need foreign exchange rates and you didn't need to have the international monetary fund try to have this balancing act of what every currency is worth to try to keep trade in some weird equilibrium that the free market would have regulated and and allowed to function much better. I mean, it literally, to me, it just provides a sense of hope on every single level for for governments to be able to be more accountable and to have a, a balance sheet that's not you know, drowning in debt that we pay with more debt. It allows the individual to be their own bank and to become individually sovereign and to have money that doesn't inflate away. Um, it it allows, you know, companies to, I think, you know, function more based on production and value mm-hmm. as opposed to, again, just trying to go offshore to find the cheapest possible way to produce things. I just think it returns us to sanity and to equality and to, a wealth distribution that will be more fair because it's, it'll be inherently based on a system of what you bring to the table and you're going to be judged on the on the quality of the goods and services that you provide. And that will be the most equal thing of all. And and look, economy won't the economy and like society won't be perfect, right? There's always going to be some people that are better or worse. Like life is not going to be fair all of a sudden and everyone's not going to be equal, but like it's going to be more equally distributed. And then we're not going to have the wealth divide that we currently do in this country, I believe. And I think it will spur innovation and and people to to really make the best of themselves and to kind of pursue, whether it's the American dream or wherever country they are, the dreams that they have. And I don't know. I mean, I know that it all sounds probably crazy, right? Like we all sound loopy, like we're going to create utopia, but um, but I truly think Bitcoin will fix most of the problems of the world. Amen. I know the audience can't see me, but my eyes are closed and my hands <laughs> in the air. Hallelujah, Natalie. Natalie, amen. <laughs> How is it that you are not the lead anchor in LA on any one of these mainstream channels? Because as far as I can understand, you are one of the most intelligent, well-spoken, and I haven't spoken to directly to a lot of people that are on any of these news organizations, but you are certainly Veronica Corningstone, and there is a Ron Burgundy <laughs> holding you down somewhere out there. I think we need to find out who that is. Where no, is Ron? Hashtag where is Ron? We're going to get it started today. Yeah. You guys, I, I have to say, I'm so happy with my decision to go off on my own because I feel like I can finally be myself and speak my mind about some of the things that I've learned and experienced over the last 10 years. And I just, I felt like I always kind of had a wall up where you know, I had to be this neutral third party, but I knew that there was issues that I wanted to talk about, but I couldn't insert myself. And I just feel like I, the, the barriers, the shackles are off and I could just be like, listen, this is the problem. And I'm not going to be an accomplice to the, to the evil by just saying, Oh, here's this guy who says this, here's this guy who says this. He said, she said, you decide here's a pie of whatever. No, 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 no. Like this is what's broken. I'm going to share it. I'm going to help you. I want everyone to succeed. That's the thing guys. Like, and I think you feel the same way. I am so inspired by the love and sacrifice of my family. I want people to have a shot and making their lives better if they are good, hardworking people. And most people are. They don't necessarily want to be Jeff Bezos with a big yacht and like a rocket that goes to Mars. They just want to take care of their families. People don't have like these huge goals to you know all be CEOs. They just want to make sure that when they come home at night, they can have a nice meal with their family, have fun on the weekend, take their family on vacation and not worry so much. Like we don't have to worry so much. And Bitcoin, I think, provides us with a chance to just like, I don't know, live better lives and treat each other better. And, and I, I'm going to do whatever I can to help spread the message on that. We're embarked on this journey, A, because we are fast, endlessly fascinated by Bitcoin, but B, because we're genuinely worried about people. Like, I think yeah. that's where a lot, we were doing all this stuff, trying to orange pill all these people at work and our friends and this. We're like, dude, let's just start putting out some content and see if we can get some people in the net here. It's been so worth it yeah. to be able to yeah. talk to people like yourself, to get to actually, you know, feel like these conversations that we're having are being heard by lots of other people that, you know, hopefully yeah. it can give, give them a helping hand. 
Yeah. I mean, you guys read the Bitcoin standard, obviously, right? And yes. then the fiat standard, Safening, talks even more about that idea of time preference and being able to just like take take those worries away and being able to focus again on family, relationships, yourself, your health, your future. Like in the American society we live in today, that's all gone by the wayside. We eat junk food. We have junk relationships. We have junk sex. We live in junk houses that we don't own. We like borrow from the bank. It Pay it back our whole be- life. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And I I really appreciate that you guys are in this in this world with me trying to create some content to make people understand. So hats off to you guys. Thank you. Last question. Uh, It's going to be kind of a handoff question. If somebody has not listened to coin stories or interacted with it, what episode blew your mind the most? What conversation did you enjoy the most that you've put out so far? That's a tough one. Well, obviously, um, I mean, I feel like everyone knows the legend Michael Saylor, and he was my most popular episode. So I think that he's a great one because you learn all about who he is and how he came to to be a successful CEO who put Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Um, so I would say his, but I honestly also liked Peter Schiff's. I, I I'm actually bringing him on Coin Stories again, and his contrarian perspective is interesting. And like the Bitcoin thing, you know, put aside Bitcoin because he, I think, you know, just he he brands himself as being against it. Yeah, he's made a lot of money on not liking Bitcoin. I think that's his <laughs> tactic. You know, he's yeah. a he's not a bad marketer. He knows he knows how to get in front of people's eyes. You know? He knows which pony to ride. Yeah. Well, well, I I will say like I actually I think Peter Schiff is brilliant as an Austrian economist and as a historian. And his book, The Real Crash, is one of my favorite books within this space. Again, it doesn't talk about Bitcoin, but it talks about literally all the problems that are existing in the current system and the bubbles that we've created and how how to basically take steps to fix government. And his solution, we've just arrived at different solutions. His solution is the gold standard and our solution is Bitcoin, but we have everything else in common. He's a great writer. So I would say those two are are really great. Very interviews. cool. How else can people interact with you and find your work? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Nat Brunel. Um, I'm on Instagram, Natalie Brunel. Um, Coin Stories is on every platform, YouTube, Apple, Google Play. Um, I teach Bitcoin. Uh, you could go to btcforwomen.com. And if you want to hire me to speak to your organization about Bitcoin, um, you can also email or DM me. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was very enlightening talking to you. Yeah, this was a stellar convo, Natalie. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.